0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Escape Maker's On Demand Agrotourism Training. For more information, go to escapemaker.biz. That's escapemaker.biz.
2: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network
3: This is Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Bob Valgenti from Gastronomica, the journal for food studies, in for Coral Lee. jello is a beloved dessert, but also an unexpected source of religious debate. Today, anthropologist Rose Wellman shares the fruits of her fieldwork in Iran as part of our series of deeper dives into recent articles in Gastronomica. Dr. Wellman is the assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Michigan, Dearborn, where she specializes in Iran, the Middle East, and its diaspora. Rose, welcome to Meant to be Eaten.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
3: So let's start. Can we begin with your work, broadly construed as an anthropologist? What are the questions that motivate your research, and why were you drawn to Iran to conduct your fieldwork?
2: Yeah, so a couple of things uh, motivate my research in Iran. So I, um, I became an anthropologist um, early on in my college training, but I was part of that cohort of people who experienced 9-11, were critical of some of the U.S. foreign policy activities in regards to 9-11, and started to be interested in the Middle East and wanting to give a more humanistic portrayal of that part of the world. So that really shaped my um, early interest in Iran, that and uh, my early introductions to Iranian cuisine through Iranian friends, which the cuisine is amazing if you've never tried it. It's really, really good.
3: So was that something you went into your research, thinking that you would study food? Or did the food research sort of uh, grow out of your experiences both here and abroad uh, studying about Iran?
1: Yeah, so
2: in my broader research, I'm interested in questions about how um, small things that we do every day shape political things, so kind of how the personal intersects with the political or the micro intersects with the macro. So I look at things like kinship and everyday food practices and how they intersect with larger questions about citizenship or religious values. And um, food was something that caught my attention really early in my research because it is something that is so prolific in Iran. Um, The women I did research with spend hours a day preparing Iranian food. And, um, you know, the production process is very different from here in the sense that things aren't made, packaged, and processed, or at least they aren't in the rural areas of Iran. So you kind of have to sacrifice your own sheep and eat you know, and be able to butcher it and um, prepare it yourself or gain, you know, your parsley comes with all the roots and the dirt, and so you have to spend hours cleaning that. And so I became intrigued by all these practices of food preparation that were so different from what I found in the US where I, was, where I grew up.
3: So, in those really involved practices, so as you were doing your field work, were you participating in the preparation of those meals? And, and if so, what were the challenges of trying to be a researcher? but also a good guest in those households?
2: Yeah, so um, most of my field work I spent actually in two different households. And one was in Tehran, which is the capital of Iran, and the other one was in a small town in the Fars province. And in that place, I was there for almost a year. So I became this weird combination of both guest and kind of family member. They started calling me, you know, you're like my daughter. So. I had certain roles around uh, the kitchen, some of those where I often was involved in salad preparation or um, chopping vegetables and things like this. But, you know, they never let me actually cook the Iranian food because that is something that is usually the role of the mother of the household and the daughters kind of help out. So I kind of, you know, we have something in anthropology called participant observation where you both observe and participate at the same time. And we think that by doing that, you actually gain um, you know, a better appreciation of how things feel. And, and I think I got to do that by eating a lot and also by participating in the small ways that I could. Um, there, there's a kind of funny story about one or two occasions where they asked me to make American food in Iran, and then they said how interesting it was but never asked me again. So. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so as, as both participant and observer, I think, I think I'll have some questions maybe a little bit later about uh, the, the kind of role that Western food plays in Iran, but uh, maybe to, to, to think first about uh, some of the differences between uh, your participation and your observations in the kitchen in Tehran versus the, uh, the kitchen outside of Tehran. Were there, were there really salient differences between the two that you observed?
2: Yeah, so even though I was in two kitchens, basically, of two households that were two brothers and their families, so there were one family, um, there were notable differences in Tehran versus in the rural part of Iran, where I did most of my research in a small town. And um, namely, in Tehran, they, um, they cooked a lot of, they didn't really cook a lot of fast foods, but they went out to restaurants more. Um, you know, like sandwiches. Um, they ate, you know, fast food lasagna, things like this that are available in the city in Tehran. Um, and the kitchen itself um, had a little bit more uh, fast food type items and Western style items like jello. And that's obviously the subject of my article, and that's what inspired me to do it. In the small town where I did my research, you had the availability of some of these items, but they didn't appear as much, and they were um derided a little bit more especially by especially by the parental generation who seemed to um generally just say, "This is not good for our health, this is not good for our children." And um, so there was a, a big difference there in those two kitchens, but the kitchens looked pretty much the same in terms of the equipment that they had and things like that. Um, no microwaves in either of them, by the way, so that's kind of interesting.
3: So this might be a good moment, since you brought it up, to talk about the centerpiece yeah. of your article, which is Jello. Uh, can you explain a little bit about uh, the fascination with Jello that you observed while you were in Iran?
2: Yeah, so uh, I didn't even think about Jello when I began doing fieldwork in Iran. I mean, I went there with the purpose of looking at. Actually, my main focus was kinship at the time, and I was I was interested in food, but you know, I didn't really know how any of that would fit together. But then, when I did my research, uh, you know, one of the first things I noticed was that we were eating Jello almost every day of the week, especially when I was in Tehran. And then I noticed that the newsstands. Had um, you know, chefs, uh, newsstands, and things like this. They had like I don't know, Good Eat, and things like this. Different Iranian magazines, and they were covered in pictures of beautiful displays of jello with um, you know, you use a syringe. So you can find these videos on YouTube. Americans do it too, but there's a syringe you can use to make these flowers and very delicate displays within the jello, within the gelatin, and it's like an art form, and Iranians have really cottoned on to this, and it seems to be kind of a trend where you see a lot of this kind of beautiful flowers and designs in the jello, and, and, you know, I was surprised, so why did we eat it so much? And then when we brought it home, it was never just, okay, let's just eat jello, you know, it might not be too good for us, or it might be great, or... It's tasty or anything. It was questions came up about its halalness. Mm-hmm. So, was jello halal? And, um, you know, what good did it do for us? Was it something we should be eating? So, this question wasn't a question about was it healthy or was it not healthy? It was a question about what is the right thing to eat to be the right kind of person. And so, that's what intrigued me. And it was a question that people had different answers for. But wherever I went, it was a question. It was a question that people ask. So I became interested in this question myself, and I thought, kind of tucked it in my, you know, it wasn't the first thing I was studying when I was doing my field work, but I kind of tucked it away as that's like an interesting thing that I need to get into because it just raises so many different issues about politics, about values, about Islam. So that's, hence I wrote this article about Jell-O.
3: So could you explain a little yeah. bit for listeners who might not be familiar about uh, uh, what the halal designation means and then how that plays out specifically with uh, jello in this case.
2: Yeah, so um, in Iran and in Islam, uh, halal basically means something that is lawful and um, religiously permissible is another way that that is translated. And um, it usually, when we think of halal, we think of the foods that are considered halal. And the foods that are considered Haram, which is the opposite of halal, which means unlawful, so Muslims in general can 't eat things like pork or alcohol, and in a similar way to Jewish uh, kosher kind of food practices, they can 't eat uh, food that has been that hasn 't been slaughtered in the correct ritual way so um, pork is not allowed, but also cows aren't allowed if they haven't been slaughtered with um, the name of God and the incision being done in the correct way and so on and so forth. So uh, what, I, what's, what I've found is that there's actually an increasing halal standardization and certification around the world when you look at these ideas. So you can find now you know, halal brands on products in the same way you can find kosher brands on products. And, um, and so this was something else I learned as I was doing this research, but, um, yeah, but halal isn't only about food items. It's also about a more general sense about how you conduct your life. Um, there's this idea that, um, halal isn't about food only. It's also about living your life in the right way and mindfulness of God and, um, kind of doing what is halal and acting in halal ways in order to um, create a better spiritual health in yourself and in your family.
3: Yeah, that was one of the interesting points of your essay. If I were to extract a central theme uh, from the text, it seemed that one of the central questions is just this idea of what good food is, and this is maybe a lens through which we can think about uh, halal foods, uh, and in this specific case with Jello. So... Was your sense that the questions surrounding Jello had uh, more to do uh, with uh, what it was actually made out of and whether it qualified as halal? Or do you think it had more to do with uh, the potential uh, health detriments uh, that it carried with it? Or might it even have been its, its the fact that it was a Western food uh, or some combination of all of those?
2: Yeah, so I actually think it's a combination of all of those things. Um, You know, on the one hand, uh, whether or not Jell-O is halal is debated by Islamic jurisprudence um, who um, have this... They decide whether it's um, halal or not on the basis of what's called Ijtihad or independent reasoning, um, according to the Quran and the Hadith. You can follow, as a Shia Muslim, you can follow any jurisprudent that you want. There's a couple of these ayatollahs or marja taklid. They're people that you're supposed to be able to emulate, and they're religious scholars. And so you can follow whichever one you want, and they have different rulings on gelatin. And some say, you know, it's okay uh, to eat it because it's changed so much in the process of turning from, say, pork bone or pig bone into... Uh gelatin that it's actually a different substance, and others say you know it's that's that's not sufficient, it doesn't change that much. um Other arguments are about you know is it okay to eat anything that's purchased in a Muslim country or a Muslim market with the assumption that something is halal so these are questions that jello raises, uh but it also raises questions about Western food and Western aesthetics, and I like to think about it. You know, during so Iran had a revolution in 1979. And we all hear about this, where uh, the previous um, the Shah was um, was uh, gotten rid of, and um, the Ayatollah Khomeini um, came to power. Now we have the supreme leader of Iran, the Ayatollah Khomeini, and um, the people I worked with um, were kind of a unique population because they actually support. The values of the Islamic Republic. Um, Iran is a diverse country, and there are a lot of people who do not support the current values of the Islamic Republic and the values of the Ayatollah Khamenei, for example, the current supreme leader. But these people do, um, at least the parental generation sort of, and really actually did. And so for them, eating jello was akin to kind of a Western, it's a Western style food. It has these elements of, um, you know, it possibly is not halal, and um, it's something that usually isn't made in Iran, so these all these factors are combined to make jello kind of something that's a little bit more controversial, uh, as compared to maybe some other foods.
3: Yeah, so, so what? Oh, yeah. So so. Why don't we take this moment? So on the yeah. the verge of this controversy and the way that it mm-hmm. plays out in the uh, different generational and political divides, uh, and we'll come back in just a moment. Great. You're, okay. You're listening to Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be back after this short break.
1: This episode is brought to you by Escape Makers On Demand Agritourism Training. Did you know that every $1 invested in tourism marketing returns on average $3 to $8 back? Not a bad ROI. Learn how to grow your agritourism business via 12 workshops entirely women-led. These training workshops are on demand and can be downloaded at any time. The local travel landscape is rapidly changing to meet the demands of the leisure, event, and corporate travel sectors. Whether you're a farmer or producer, a winemaker, a restaurateur, or a destination marketing organization, there's more opportunity than ever to capture these markets. The on-demand agritourism training will provide you with insights and skills to keep your target demographic coming back for more. Fourteen speakers providing six-plus hours of education that you can watch at your convenience anytime on any device. Maximize your time, budget and resources and focus on creative solutions to help your business thrive. Presented by EscapeMaker and Fulton Stall Market, the full conference access pass is now available to purchase. Use the code HERITAGE2020 for $50 off a full pass at checkout. For more information and to purchase your pass, go to escapemaker.biz. That's escapemaker.biz.
3: And we're back. This is Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Bob Valgenti from Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, in for Coral Lee. Rose Wellman and I were just discussing the controversies surrounding Jello in Iran and how this plays out among different generations, perhaps even among different political factions. So, Rose, could you uh, say a little bit more about how things begin to change with the younger generation in your Article You point out how um, you point out the concept of Western struckness and how this idea has played into many of the food practices that are both um, perhaps appealing to younger generations but also seen as the source of both religious and health concerns on the part of older generations.
2: Right, Um, so I'm glad you brought that up. So uh, we were talking about how gelatin is controversial and jello is controversial, not just because it is halal or not halal, but also because of kind of a broader sense of the values of um, the current-day Islamic Republic and the people who support it. And, um, you know, this this is articulated very well in the idea of Western struckness, which is um, in Farsi, it's Gab and it literally means struck by the West, and its idea of kind of Western cultural invasion um, and an empty mimicry of the West that um, was, uh, the idea comes from Jalal Ali Ahmed who wrote a book of that title, Western Struckness. And it's about how, you know, at that time, he was writing in the 1970s and at that time he saw this empty Western mimicry and um, later during the revolution um, some of his ideas and some of these tropes Reappeared in, um, in the mouth of the Ayatollah Khomeini, who um, was the founder of the 1979 revolution. So uh, this idea was that, you know, we need to kind of go back to an Islamic authentic self rather than relying on Western tropes and Western ideas to guide um, Iranian values. And so, uh, you know, at one point, Ali Ahmed in his commentary says, you know, we, should, we, should, um, we shouldn't eat Western sandwiches. You know, this is part of our moral decay. And so there's this idea that um, after the revolution, you see that restaurants like uh, McDonald's were outlawed and banned, Kentucky Fried Chicken, things like that. All of those things were in Iran before the revolution. After the revolution, they're not in Iran anymore. And what you see instead is um, new uh, restaurants popping up with interesting names, like McMashala or uh, one of the other ones is um, Zamzam Cola instead of Coca-Cola. And so you see this kind of Islamification of Western-style foods, but not their disappearance. Um, and so that kind of hints at some of the controversy around it, around these things. But for the young people I spoke with, it seemed for the most part okay for them to eat these um, Western-style foods, as long as they were halal, as long as they were in Iran, and ideally if they were Iranian brands. Um, but it was a little bit different for them. They didn't see a problem with it the way their parents did. Their parents kind of thought that this food wasn't healthy for them, and it would cause them, you know, to not only be sick physically, but to be sick spiritually.
3: And is that kind of sickness part of uh, the t- you know the, the type of food that it is. So when you talk about Western style foods that are mm-hmm. brought into, um, we might say the kind of religious and cultural context of Iran, mm-hmm. uh, is it that is it those styles of food um, and those types of food? So whether they're sandwiches or they're fast food to go, things like that, that that is the source of it, or is it is it something other that is um, you know the concern of the older generations?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a combination of things because most of these Western-style foods are highly processed and they don't involve a lot of the things that uh, food cooked at home involves any, for these families. For these families, foods cooked at home are foods that are cooked with pure intention, um, which in Farsi is niyat, and it's food cooked in coordination with daily prayers. And sometimes food cooked at home is blessed for this and explicitly blessed for the sake of healing Or shaping family members Protecting them from, from bad things happening Or um, in hopes of prosperity and things like this But the fast foods don't enter into that world at all you know, They're kind of in the outside They're not in the inside of the home And they're in the outside And they're in this region that Iran is considered more corrupting The inside is where the purity is And the outside is possibly corrupting And the inside is where the trust is And the inside of the home Um, And so the outside foods are more, you know, there's greater ambivalence toward that. It doesn't create that sense of blessing that um, the home cooked, you know, carefully labored over Iranian cuisine creates for people. And then you'll see this in a national scale, because uh, like when I was in Iran, there were many, many commemorations for martyrs and, um, you know. You would think that they wouldn't have these commemorations for martyrs because the Iran-Iraq War ended in 1988, but they're still finding martyrs' bodies from the border and reburying them at sites across the Iranian landscape. And so what I found was that um, at these commemorations for martyrs, they're sharing blessed food among all those who are there, all those in attendance. And, you know, some might say skeptically that this is just to get people to attend. But for my host, it wasn't that at all. It was... Actually, share blessing with everyone and kind of shape citizens in a particular way so that they were pure and blessed and not, um, you know, not kind of corrupted. And just jello doesn't fit into any of that. It's not, you know, you wouldn't serve jello at such an event. You serve Iranian food from a kind of an Iranian national menu and then you bless it through praying over it. But you don't, um, you don't serve things like jello. I just, it's just like in a different frame that doesn't really help. You know, it doesn't help you aspire to be a better nation or a better citizen or a better family member.
3: Yeah, so yeah. There, those dichotomies are oftentimes mm-hmm. uh, powerful and even helpful as, you know, even within a Western context, we navigate all, oftentimes between distinctions like global and local and natural and unnatural or processed. And so do you think that that dichotomy, this the home-cooked, blessed food, versus uh, the, the food that's created outside of the home perhaps with a different intention is that persist as strongly among the younger generations and if it does change is that a matter of just degree or do you think it's you know it's it's really more of a strong cultural shift whether that that is in uh, just in the the more metropolitan areas like Tehran or even more broadly than that
2: yeah well it, it really depends who you're talking about um, some of these, you know, these I'm talking about, kind of a parental generation born before the revolution and their children, um, and these are all the people I worked with were people who support the Islamic Republic. And for them, I think to some degree, that um, dichotomy of blessed food that is Iranian versus kind of foreign food is being upheld to some degree. I'm seeing them give their kids food that they consider to be, you know, homemade and blessed and doing a lot of the same things their parents did. Maybe not quite so strongly, but they're still um, in that frame. They're still, that cultural logic is still really salient for them. Uh, however, if you look across Iran, I think you'd find that that's not the case. That foreign savvy, you know, um, knowing foreign foods and things like this is actually a point of pride and a point of distinction. And so, uh it's definitely not the same everywhere but um it is interesting that there is even for that generation that um that is part of the cohort of state supporters it is shifting a bit and i think um you know they're increasingly open to uh different kinds of foods and things like that so yeah i think things are changing a bit Mm -hmm.
3: so let's put jello back at the at the center of all this so does it play a role? There's there's a point in your essay where you say that, um, I think Jell-O is a technology of citizenship, um, and that you, and then you connect that to an idea of, of what you identify as a kind of biomorality. Um, so what role, if any, does a Western food like Jell-O once it's brought into the debates over its halal status, uh, or it's brought into, you might say, a wide range of, of homes around the country? So. What does it mean to connect those kinds of food practices and notably Western foods to uh, your notions of citizenship notions of the state within a country like Iran?
2: yeah so I think um, I think it's interesting because what you see is that you know often when we think about food practices we don't think about them as being a part of national politics um, and we also don't think about the embody how we embody um, food in terms of its values very much, um, and so this is something that I found really fascinating with Jello or with the other foods that Iranians or this cohort of Iranians Iranians are um, consuming is because the blessed food, right? Because they, um, for them, food isn't just a part of your physical world or your medical health. It's something that's um, part of your. Politics. It's something that's a part of your religious world. And so all these things are combined in Iran in this unique way because um, it is an Islamic republic and it is a place where, um, you know, the vast majority of the population is Muslim. And it's also a place where um, food and your bio, you know, your biology, your, they're connected. And so the values are connected to what you eat, to what you embody through the food that you eat. And I think we can learn a lot from that because it's not just about, um, you know, food is a way, often in anthropology, we talk about how food is a means of creating social boundaries, like what food you eat versus what foods they eat. Um, And I think this is very much the case in Iran because people are embodying the values that uh, that they believe in through what they eat, and they're shaping their community through what they eat. And they might even be protesting kind of, a sense of, um, you know, uh, westernization through what they eat, or maybe they're also agreeing with it. But it's controversial. Mm-hmm. And so nevertheless, it just shows how political food really is and how much it's connected to things that we don't think about, like citizenship or nation-making and, and so on.
3: So are those, are those lines that are drawn by the food choices that we make in the case of Iran, do you think that those, are, those lines are more strongly distinguishing Iran from the outside world, and particularly the Western world, or do you think that they are more trained towards uh, distinctions within the political and religious life uh, in Iran?
2: I think it's actually both because, um, you know, for my hosts, there was this aspiration, an aspiration to live a really good life and to connect with God. and Part of this was played out in their food choices and in the aesthetics surrounding food that they supported, but at the same time, and I think you'll see this if you look at you know the past forty or fifty years of Iranian history, the politics of food, the politics of um, you know the restaurants and what are what is allowed in Iran and what is not, and so on show that it's it's this broader Political issue. And, and so I think you see that um, it's also about kind of setting yourself apart and showing a sense of independence from foreign powers. And that's something that, um, you know, especially for these cohort of people who support the state, it's really important to show an independence along the lines of, um, you know, the, the words of Jalal Ali Ahmed and Fabi in Western Struckness, which were to kind of have an authentic Islamic self that is a bit different from the values of, uh, I don't know, the modern West. Not that what ha- what's happening in Iran is not modern at all. In fact, it is highly modern, but it's, it's trying to be its own self and not just have the same values that you see in you know, America or in Europe.
3: Do you think it goes both ways? So there's you know, what you describe as kind of biomoral practice So the individual food choices that that cooks at home or families might make connect them to their religion and even connect them to the state. Does it go perhaps the opposite way, what we might call biopolitically, so that food is being utilized by the state to send the same kind of message and to create the same kind of national identity from the top down rather from the kitchen outward?
2: Oh, definitely. I think I think it definitely goes both ways, and that's a really good point because um, you know you'll see that uh, a lot of these interventions about Iranian food were top down—the um, outlying of fast foods, for example, in in Iran and things like that, and the the laws surrounding the borders of Iran and halal food and what's allowed in Iran and what's not allowed. And so a lot of those are top down. And, um, you know, I definitely think that food has been a means by which state elites have tried to shape citizens um, and citizens that will support the Islamic Republic and citizens that will um, have many of the same values. And um, yeah, that's definitely, definitely the case that uh, this is happening. And and it always was striking to me when I went to these commemorations of martyrs during my fieldwork, and you see this outpouring of food, and you see this um, state generosity. And often I theorize that it's kind of, it's like a paternalistic move on the part of the state in a way to kind of say, you know, we're feeding you, we're, you're a part of this Iranian family. So it's, by doing that by creating that sense of family it In other parts of my research i talk about how this is like a naturalizing force it makes everything seem like this is the way things are right this is the natural way like we're a family we share a blessing um and it kind of casts a line around that group as opposed to other groups um in a way that seems very natural because it draws from the metaphors of family and kinship in a way. And all nations do this by the way. Like a lot of nations are framed on the idea of kinship and family and naturalized but in Iran things are also sacralized um, and uh, so that's kind of the unique thing about Iran. It's both a naturalization and a sacralization of, of citizenship. And yes, it's very much done by the state as well as from the kitchen outward. So it's a two-way process.
3: Would you say, maybe as a final thought, that food is the primary or one of the more powerful ways that this is done? I I bring that up because it's also within the title of your book that's coming out, which is called Feeding Iran. So is this, uh, could you maybe end on uh, how you would evaluate the role that food plays overall within the other strategies uh, for uh, developing uh, statehood and citizenship in a place like Iran?
2: Yeah, so um, my book, which is forthcoming at the University of California Press, um, is about how uh, not only food, food is one thing, but how um, several things that people kind of do at home, so family home practices, how home family practices relate to state power and connect to state power, um, as a, again, as kind of a two-way process. And so um, I look at blood, too, and how blood is used to kind of naturalize the Islamic Republic and the blood of martyrs and the blood of um, uh, soldiers who have, who have died in, in war or in other events where people are made martyrs, such as the recent assassination of um, Soleimani, for instance. And I, and I look at all these things to understand what the relationship is between Islam, kinship, and nation-making in the, in the modern Middle East and in Iran and what an analysis of home life can tell us about, again, about state power. So that's kind of where I'm going, but it's a, about a whole spectrum of things. So food is one of those things. But what substances, acts, and ideas of home and family are, are people wielding to make the nation seem natural and legitimate is basically the question I'm asking.
3: That's great. Well, I want to thank you for joining us today.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been great.
3: Thanks so much. If you would like to learn more about this research or other work featured in Gastronomica, visit gastronomica.org, where you can access the spring 2020 issue for free until the end of this year. Or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Gastronomica, the journal for food studies, is an international interdisciplinary journal that presents new and original research, advances our understanding of compelling issues in the world of food, and invites critical debate and commentary across diverse audiences. Gastronomica is supported by the University of California Press, and on behalf of the Journal's editorial collective, I want to thank the Heritage Radio Network, Meant to be Eaten, and its host, Coral Lee, for allowing us to share this mini-series of podcasts.
2: Meant to be Eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community?